Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Jude 12. There's only one chapter. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. When they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. They're empty, is the idea. But what I want to draw your attention to is that in the early second, the first century, the Christians called the Lord's Supper the love feast. You know, in this verse, these are the men who are hidden wreaths in your love feasts. And so the idea in Jude is those who are unloving, the ones that are in it for themselves, misusing the love feast or the Lord's Supper. Paul is going to talk about the same thing. We'll look at a a parallel verse in Corinthians talking about the Lord's Supper, communion, and the love feast. And the idea was a time to be self-giving in love in which they took the bread and the cup in the context of a festive meal. We've just passed through Thanksgiving and that is the meaning of the term Eucharist. It's a Thanksgiving meal. But the bread and cup began to be separated from the meal historically. And we don't know quite why this happened. Some scholars have argued that the Christians dropped the meal because they wanted to keep the Eucharist or the the bread and the wine separate, keep it from being profaned by the participation of unbelievers. You know, many people would come in for a meal. Maybe it was that there was a growing influence of pagan religious ritual. But at any rate, by the fourth century, the love feast which Jude is calling it, was prohibited by Christians. That is, when you eat your love feast together, I think it's a command. I think this is a thing we're to do. But the Council of Carthage in eighty-three ninety-seven prohibited it. And with this shift, the very meaning of the supper changed. And it cannot mean whenever you, you know, celebrate the Mass. That's what it's going to become in the Catholic Church. There was no Mass. It is a Thanksgiving meal. I think it's a festive meal. Jesus says, whenever you do this, do it in my memory. At that point, he's celebrating what is called the Passover Supper. The question is, do what in his memory? He might mean whenever you celebrate the Passover. But of course, the idea is they're not just doing it annually. They're doing it weekly or even more often than that that whenever you do this whenever you gather together and we know that yes the meal was in Luke and other places we know they were celebrating the Passover and this is part of the meaning you know that Jesus takes the Passover bread and breaks it and now the Passover of death that it is a reality death is truly defeated and that's what we're celebrating or even that's what we're enacting 
But of course the Passover, it's not simply an annual celebration. Whenever you have your common meal together is a way of reading this. And the meal he blessed and claimed as his memorial, I think it was just their ordinary partaking of the food for the body. And only because it was that communal meal of the disciples, the fellowship, could it provide the occasion for the appointment of deacons. That is, in Acts 7, they're going to have to distribute the bread. In other words, the church is eating communally, and then they appoint deacons to make sure everybody is getting their fair share to distribute the food as reported in Acts. And so all of the later controversies about the Lord's Supper were something which the apostolic generation had no notion of. Namely about the detailed theoretical definition, you know, the meaning of sacrament, the meaning of the elements. The most obvious thing about Paul invoking the Lord's Supper is when you do this, there is a particular ethical understanding. And I think that's key. So let's read a, another passage here. Look at 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 29. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Here's the Passover supper. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take ye, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. The New Testament, the idea, new covenant. Jesus is doing a new thing. As we talked last week, here is the completion of the imagery of the law or of the celebration of the Passover. Here is the true deliverance from death. This do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you show the Lord's death till he come. It is a celebration of the death and resurrection of Christ. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, and that's the problem at Corinth. Some people are bringing a big lunch and they're not sharing, or they're making some people wait and they're going hungry. If you do that, you're guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. That is, you're, you're celebrating the body of Christ improperly. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. If you eat and drink unworthily, you eat and drink damnation to yourself, not discerning the Lord's body. And so certainly the church is not the authority that sacrifices Christ. That's what the mass is going to come to mean. The meal or Lord's Supper is exactly the opposite of this. The whole problem of sin is precisely the reign of death, the refusal of love, the refusal of a proper fellowship. And of course, sacrificial love is what's taking place in the Lord's Supper. Christ undoes the reign of death 
through his self-giving love, giving his life to us, and we participate in this reversal, you know, both the Lord's Supper and the baptism, they represent death and resurrection. Here's new life. And that's what we're celebrating. This is my body, which is for you, as Paul says in 11.24, quoting Christ. It indicates at a minimum a solidarity of fellowship, group solidarity. And at a deeper level, we recognize there's an organic oneness of the body. And what I'm saying is this is not a magical rite. It is moral, it is ethical, and it is aimed at shaping the common life of the Christian community. It's a sharing of life. The meal is part and parcel of establishing, maintaining a Christian community. That's why in our church we celebrate it every Sunday. This is why we come to be a community together, to be partakers of the body of Christ. And the rules of the meal link the conduct of the participants to their participation in the meal. That is the way you do this. The way that you do community, community practice, either provides a fullness of meaning or it voids the meal of any meaning. All who partake are to be sacrificial, to lay down their lives sacrificially, to be loving. If when you assemble, you ignore one another, you know, Paul says, each going ahead with some hungry, others overindulging. He says, well, then that's not the Lord's Supper. The point of the meal is solidarity in the kingdom. The breaking of bread is believers actually sharing life with one another, eating together, stands for hospitality, community. It is the formation of community. Bread is daily sustenance, but it is also the sustenance that we have in Christ. Bread eaten together, it is literally an economic sharing. We come and share our food, we share our money, we share our lives. It's not merely symbolic, it is that, I think it there is a symbolism attached, but it's to say it's a symbol, maybe to miss it, it's an enactment of something. It's an enactment of community. It extends to a wider circle, a kind of economic solidarity. You know, we normally eat with our families, and that's the idea, we're eating with our family together. Jesus takes the role of the head of the family. That's what you're doing. The, the father stands up, breaks the bread, passes the food, and Jesus is distributing the bread. And he projects into the post-passion world the common purse. That is, this becomes a new economics. And I think that's involved. When the family head you know, feeds you at his table, well, you're part of the family. But here is the incorporating, the incorporation into the family. And so it is a sign, but it's also the thing itself. The two things are joined. You know, same thing when we have a wedding and somebody says, I do. That's not simply a sign. No, you just got married when you say, I do. And so too, with the taking of the Lord's Supper, the thing it signifies and the sign are joined together. You are part of the family. 
So to be immersed and to rise from the waters, baptism, the same thing. It symbolizes death and resurrection. But more than that, literally, it makes you a member. You have participated in the death and resurrection of Christ. And so, too, the eating together is a family fellowship. And in this family, things are different. Paul says if anyone is in Christ, the whole world is new in 2 Corinthians 5. So that worldly standards have ceased to count in my estimate, he says, of a person. Social definitions, you know, based upon class. And I think this was a problem in the Corinthian church. We know there were very wealthy people in Corinth. And probably the church was meeting in the houses of people who had big houses. And there were very poor people in Corinth. Paul is trying to get them to no longer observe these distinctions of class. As he puts it in Galatians, there is no slave nor free in the church. You can't have some people down in the basement and some people up in the church, you know. Well, you slaves go down in the basement and do it. He said, you can't do that. You can't separate out male and female. There is no male and female. He says, you're all one in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians, it's explicitly baptism that he calls it a new humanity. In 2 Corinthians, a new creation. That is, this is the enactment of a new thing. And the barrier of slavery, of gender, of class, is not to exist in the church. And there's really no hierarchy. In a key passage of Matthew's gospel, he says, What you bind on earth is bound in heaven. I think that's what we're doing. We're binding something together that is bound in heaven. It's not simply a sign. I think this is the thing itself. Binding and loosing, enacting reconciliation, founding community on a different basis. This is spiritual worship. It's ethical enactment. You know, it's a sign in what's signified. And certainly the fellowship of the meal is primary. Not so much what is eaten or whose house that it's in. The manner of eating is the main thing. How you eat it. That is what judgments, what discernments, and not the recipe of what you're eating. Paul says to discern the body of Christ, to live gently, lovingly, generously, within the body of Christ. And so the death of Christ is is clearly what is celebrated. What we mean by that is a reversal of the way we normally live, in which death may be the controlling factor in our slavery to sin. Our application and understanding of this reversal, we're realizing this in both baptism and in communion. This is Paul's description in Romans 6. Uh, to live out your baptism. I think the way we take communion is a kind of living out of the life of Christ, the life and death of Christ. And what I'm saying here, the supper does not offer up Christ to be ingested. It is not a literal physical body, a literal physical blood. The supper is not a consumption literally of his blood and body. 
I'm afraid that what is happening is the sign becomes more important in some people's estimate than the signified. The meal enacts the body. In other words, we're not saying something less, we're saying something more. This is the body of Christ. The sign and signified are joined. The meal is the experience of Christ, of atonement, at one meant, you know, being brought into one. It's not a sign of something else. The sign and what it signifies, we can see it. It, it, it's brought together. The food, not through an incantation. You know, this is the thing that the ritual surrounding the Eucharist, so that the priest, you know, he does the incantation and then the, the things are magically transformed. I think that misses it. It misses the symbolism of the Lord's Supper and it takes the symbolism as a thing, an end in and of itself. The reality is the koinonia, the fellowship, the life that is given. It's a hard and fast reality that we're encountering, a reality we experience together. Yes, it is spiritual, but spiritual here means life together with God and with one another. And death is the opposite of this. And so the fruit of the vine, the substance of the food, the body of Christ, here is life. It is a meal at which Christ is the host. In the words of Alexander Campbell, it is not up to us to invite anyone or to keep anyone out, to invite or debar. There is no notion that, is a, that a prayer said by a priest, a mediator, that that changes the elements that then oh now Jesus is there and now it conveys Jesus the development in the medieval period of the idea that the elements of the supper literally become the body and blood of Jesus I'm afraid it was sometimes depicted in a crude literalism as eating the actual flesh and drinking the actual blood you know Thomas Aquinas he works this out in a highly sophisticated description trying to get away from this Luther, Calvin, Zwingli they would all set forth very different pictures of the Lord's Supper and Baptism in other words that's part of what's being rejected in the Reformation but of course part of the problem in the Reformation they were kind of finding common ground against Roman Catholicism and the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, was the key thing to do that. The Lord's Supper, the love feast, became the differentiating factor between the various Protestant groups and then the difference between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. When I say differences, I mean differences that people would kill one another over. So they're killing one another over the love feast. Probably something went wrong somewhere. What all had failed to do was to join faith and practice as containing the essence of Christianity. This notion that priestly mediators stand at the top of a hierarchical chain through which Jesus is mediated would seem to be precisely over and against Paul's point. He's saying, no, there is no Lord and Master. There is no slave and servant. There is no male and female. 
And it's precisely against those who would divide themselves according to some hierarchy. Which Paul says actually disqualifies this as the Lord's Supper. Clearly, this is not a communal meal in which Christ is the head, the host. And probably those wealthy enough you know, to host the church were the most guilty in the first century. It may be that they assumed the role of patrons. And other church members were put into the position, oh, well, you're my guest, you know. You sit over there. I'm sorry, you'll have to go to the basement. The style of the arrangements, inevitably, they may have been dividing out the class and gender and of, of the dining. And so this sort of division, this idea of a hierarchy of importance, that was the problem that Paul is solving. And unfortunately, many churches have instituted the problem as if that is the way it's supposed to be done. This sort of division does not qualify as the Lord's Supper in Paul's explanation. The schisms or divisions are undermining the very purpose of this meal. Now Paul says dissensions are unavoidable. It's likely that complaints had been made by the poor about how outrageous the effects of this have been. Paul says, do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? And you could just imagine him saying, you know, in your fancy robes, in your ornate display, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I will not praise you. So then you, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Serve one another. If anyone is hungry, well, let him eat at home. That's not exactly the point of the meal. The point of the meal is Thanksgiving. When you come together, don't make it for judgment, Paul said. Some are made to feel like second-class Christians. And Paul's point is this misses the Lord's Supper. And one cannot help but think that this would be a discouragement. It should be a discouragement for any kind of clergy-laity distinction, which, of course, will arise. You understand, it's around the giving of the Eucharist and the power of transforming the Eucharist that the priesthood is established. Very much like an early patron might imagine that he is the host. He's in control. He's necessary for the supper. No, you're not necessary. Only one is necessary, and that's Jesus. And the idea that the priest is offering Christ again as a sacrifice, and that the Mass was both a sacrifice and a sacrament, that was an innovation that Luther and the Reformers rejected, and later even the Roman Catholic Church would amend. And as Luther points out, the notion that the Mass is a good work and a sacrifice. He says it has brought in its train innumerable other abuses. It turns, he says, the holy sacrament into mere merchandise and the whole income of priests and monks, depending on it. Paul might say, well, then it is not the Lord's Supper you're celebrating if you're making your income on your power to host this supper. Those who hosted the Lord's Supper in Corinth they might argue that they merely followed the accepted dining conventions. We know the slaves are supposed to eat somewhere else. Paul says, no, don't do that. Those conventions do not apply. There is no upper class 
middle class, lower class. Paul sees this as turning the Lord's Supper upside down. It's not simply to be a meal hosted by a wealthy Christian that could become an occasion for the host to determine, you know, well, he determines who's welcome. Paul says it's not the Lord's Supper. One goes hungry and another is drunk. You put to shame those who have nothing. And this is to miss the point of the meal, of the tradition which Paul has received and which he's passing on from Christ himself. Christ's death is understood to initiate a new covenant. This is the way Jesus talks about it. A new testament. A testament which changes up human relations. And even what it means to be human. It is to recognize the body and the means to discern the community of believers for what it really is. And so the focus is not on the stuff we're eating. Those who eat and drink in a selfish way, Paul says you're answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. And so the problem is not some sort of desecration of the symbols, but rather offense against Christ himself. By mistreating other members of the church, the Corinthians repeat this sort of sin that killed him in the first place. As Hebrews puts it, those who continue to sin are crucifying again the Son of God and are holding him up to contempt. I fear that the thing that is called the Lord's Supper often ends up being a sign of contempt. He says they are bringing God's judgment on themselves, causing sickness, death. And so we can see the communion as an enactment of atonement. Being made one, being incorporated into the body of Christ. The Father and the Son are united in the work of Christ in defeating evil. What is evil? What is sin and death and the devil, you know? Well, it's that thing that divides, that kills. And in participating in communion, we defeat that if we participate correctly. The Lord's Supper celebrates and reenacts defeat of death as a controlling factor in our lives. We are not killing Christ again, God forbid. We are celebrating the defeat of the power that would kill him. The dividing power, the violent power, the ethnic power, the religious power, the national power, the hierarchical power. The thing that killed him and which would divide us, that is what is defeated. It is a defeat of ethnocentrism, Jew-Gentile. It is a defeat of egocentrism and all forms of evil that would deal out selfishness. It is an overcoming of the alienation that normally would make it impossible for people to eat together. But this table fellowship with Christ makes something possible, makes something new, makes a new family. And this is the enactment of the body of Christ. Take, eat, this is the body. And here is the transformation of people in our soul. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, 
please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.